Hi, my name is Max, and I'm a happy member of Al-Anon. Um, before I forget, I want to tell you, tomorrow night Paul's talking, and he always says I give the perverted version of the story. And I just want to remind you that I was sober. <laughs> anyway, um, it never would have occurred to me to go to Al-Anon. Uh, because I didn't think our problem had anything to do with drinking. I thought Paul was crazy. And so my solution was to try to find him a psychiatrist. Um, and I thought that if I went, I could maneuver him into going. But that didn't work. And I ended up going three and a half years. I didn't learn anything about myself because I spent all my time telling the psychiatrist what Paul was doing and what my older daughter was doing, and each week I'd go back and give him a new story. Uh, at the time I was going, I don't know whether psychiatry has changed, but at the time I was going, I always got the psychiatrist that didn't talk. And uh, we'd both sit there for a while, and then I would think about all this money it was costing me, and so I talked. Um, I did get Paul to go once, though, uh, to the last one I was going after I'd gone to him a while um, he wanted to see Paul so I talked Paul into coming and he went in and stayed about five minutes and said I have nothing to say and that was the end of that but a strange thing happened to us about after we were on the program about five six years Dr. Persh who was in charge of the Navy program at that time asked Paul to be on a panel and we assumed it was something for the Navy, and it was a dinner meeting, so I didn't go. And when Paul came home, he was all excited and uh, said, guess who I saw? And it turned out that they talked to the Long Beach Medical Association. And uh, Paul said he noticed this doctor sitting on the edge of his chair and nodding and smiling, and uh, he thought, gee, he must really be interested in alcoholism. And afterwards, he came running up to Paul, and he said, remember me? And Paul looked at his badge and said, were you at the VA hospital? And he said, no, I was one of your wife's psychiatrists. <laughs> and that was the fellow that I had gotten Paul to go see. And he was delighted to see Paul and acted like he knew all along what the problem was. But I really don't think so, because after we got on the program, Paul sent letters and literature to all of my psychiatrists. <laughs> and told them that I was on Al-Anon, he was on AA, and if they'd like to talk to us, we'd be glad to talk to them. We never heard from any of them. Um, also, the first psychiatrist I went to, I didn't like him at all, because everything I said, he laughed. And I didn't think the things I was telling him were funny. And um, he had me tested. He, I took the Minnesota Multiphasic Test and the Rorschach Test, and I had the feeling I was being tricked because the Minnesota multiphasic thing, you know, it has all these questions, and they would ask you a question, and about 10 down would be the same question, only worded a little differently. So I was very careful when I took that. And also the Rorschach test, I had heard that that had something to do with sex. So I was particularly careful with that one. And I only saw animals. <laughs> After we got on the program, I talked to some alcoholic woman, and she had done the same thing. 
Anyway, when he gave me the results, he told me I was very rigid and would never change. And I was horrified. I remember coming home and crying because I was the only one doing anything about this mess. Paul wasn't doing anything. And here was this professional saying, you might as well give up. You know, nothing's going to change. I also went to priests. And I didn't go to the parish priest. I would go to somebody I didn't know. And I heard about this uh, chaplain over at St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange. So I called and made an appointment with him. And I hadn't bothered to tell Paul where I was going. And I was gone for hours. And when I came home, he wanted to know where I had been. And this priest said that what he usually did, he would talk to the wife alone, and then he would talk to the husband alone, and then he would talk to the two of us together. Well, anyway, I came home, and I had to tell Paul where I'd been, and I said, he wants to see you. So he very reluctantly agreed he'd go. So I immediately got on the phone and made the appointment for the next day. And Paul was gone forever, too. And when he came home, he was furious. And I asked him if we were going to go see the priest together, and he said, no, I'm not going back. So the next day I called the priest to find out what happened, and he told me, my husband, he said, your husband is the most stubborn man I've ever seen. And that was the whole explanation. I found out after we got on the program that this priest was also an alcoholic, drinking at the time, so no wonder they didn't get along. I made a married couple's retreat, and I went alone. Yeah, nobody thought this was strange. Um, <laughs> my husband was a doctor, and he couldn't get away, and um, so I went. But I really went to talk to the priest. I spent several hours with him, and he came to the same conclusion that I did, that Paul needed psychiatric care, but I didn't know how to get him there. Anyway, that, that's the way we were living. We, we had no communication, and it seemed like if I were in the living room, Paul would be in the bedroom, or vice versa. We spent very little time together. Occasionally, I would decide that um, we were never going to get anything settled unless we talked. And I would wait until about 11 o'clock at night, and by that time, Paul had had a few drinks and a few pills, and that was my time to have this serious conversation. And it would always end up the same way. He'd be mad and I'd cry. And I'd wait a few days and I'd think, well, I didn't do that right. And I'd try again. Never changed anything. Just try the same thing over and over and over. And um, so anyway, like I said, we, we had no communication. We weren't really doing much talking. And I remember one Saturday or Sunday morning, I was showing Paul some rust spots on our family room floor and all of a sudden he was on the floor having a convulsion and uh, you know I'd never seen anybody have a convulsion so I was terrified and I called the doctor in the next block and finally he got there by that time Paul had awakened and Art decided that Paul would go into the hospital so I rode in the ambulance with him and when we got there Paul would not stay overnight unless I stayed so I slept in the next bed and the next morning he felt fine and was ready to come home. While he was there, a neurologist saw him, and he wanted Paul to come in the office the following Wednesday to have some lab tests. So I had to drive him over because of this convulsion, and we walked into the doctor's office, and Paul proceeded to tell him the only problem was it was a marital problem. Now, I couldn't understand how I could cause Paul to have a convulsion, but if he said so, it had to be true. 
I believed everything he said. You know, I thought he was crazy, but if he said something, it was gospel truth. I don't have any trouble with the second step, I'll tell you. <laughs> and I've learned on Al-Anon that that ain't necessarily so. Um, anyway, he refused to have any of the tests, and we went back to living the way we had been. Um, then 14 months later, one Saturday night, I was in the living room, and I heard this noise back in the bedroom, and I walked back, and there's Paul on the floor having a convulsion. So I sat down on the edge of the bed, and I watched him. <laughs> and when he finished, I said, you've had a convulsion. You better go to bed. <laughs> and I hadn't even been to Elanon yet. <laughs> so the next morning, I called the uh, neurologist and told him that Paul had had this. Uh, convulsion so he suggested that Paul go back to the Mayo Clinic and it took a month for him to get the appointment and uh, during that month he was going he wasn't going he was going he wasn't going and I really didn't know whether he'd go or not but at the last minute he decided he would go so Paul and I and our two kids went back to Rochester Minnesota the middle of, of December and um, I made up my mind I was going to get in and see this neurosurgeon and tell him about the pills that Paul was taking. I, w I was thrown off a little bit because Paul told me he had a brain tumor. And uh, <laughs> the neurologist said he might have a brain tumor or early senility or something else. I don't, I don't remember. So I was focused in on that. Plus, the pills, I knew he was taking pills because I'd hear him get up at night. I didn't know what he was taking. But anyway. I finally got up enough courage to go over to see this neurosurgeon because Paul, I guess it took a week for him to go through. And I walked in this room, this huge waiting room, and everybody in there was a patient. And if you were a patient, you had a number. Well, I wasn't a patient. I didn't have a number. And I don't know why I told that gal, but she let me in. And I told this neurosurgeon that Paul was taking pills. And you know, that was a strange thing too because that was so important to me that I get in to see him because I didn't feel I could get medical help in our community. Several of the doctors in our building had approached me about Paul's change of personality and I agreed, but that's all I would say. I was not about to tell him how we were living. And <clears throat> so I told the doctor and then after I did it, I put it out of my mind, and I did not remember that for six years. Because what happened when Paul went back to get his results, they locked him up in the nut ward. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, then after I remembered that, I didn't tell Paul for another year because <laughs> I wasn't sure how he'd take this because I think he often wondered what happened. You know, <laughs> he ended up there. Anyway, it was the day before Christmas, and I went to see him, and he wanted out. And he wanted me to take responsibility for him. And I didn't know whether I should do that or not, but anyway, he told me that if I didn't agree to take responsibility, he would never speak to me again. So, you know, what could I do? I didn't know what a good opportunity that was. <laughs> anyway, so he said that he wouldn't he wouldn't drink anymore and he wouldn't take any more pills and I don't know what all he promised me. So I agreed and we got on the plane the next day and had a big fight over whether or not he was going to drink the free booze. I won. He didn't drink but he wouldn't talk or eat either all the way back to California. And when we got back there he got himself a bottle and drank it and I still 
couldn't see that drinking had anything to do with this. I grew up in a family where there was alcoholism, and I knew that they had a problem. But Paul didn't fit the picture of what I thought an alcoholic was. And so I wasn't, I wasn't ready to look at that at all. Um, I talked to a lot of newcomers, and <laughs> they always are much more willing to think that their husband is crazy than that he's alcoholic. Um, anyway, uh, so the next morning I was up bright and early, about 4 o'clock, and I was calling everybody I could think of. I called my brother-in-law back in Ohio, and uh, he said, get him medical help. And finally it was 9 o'clock, and I could call this neurologist that had sent him back there. So I called, and I told him what happened, and he asked me whether I thought Paul would see a local psychiatrist. And I said, well, I don't know. It hadn't worked before. But anyway, when Paul got up, I, I approached him with it, and he agreed that he would go. And I think it was the next day. Um, that we went over and Paul talked to this uh, psychiatrist for about 45 minutes and I talked to him for about 10 minutes and he locked him up in the local nut ward and I knew he was in the right place. Um, it was strange about this doctor too. He's not, he's not an alcoholic and at one time in my searching for a psychiatrist I tried to get into him. And when I called, I felt that I had to go on Wednesday because that was our day off at the office. And the girl just said, we're not here on Wednesday, and hung up, and I never had the courage to call back. But I, I'm glad it happened that way because I don't think it would have turned out the way it did if I had been in there maneuvering and trying to push Paul into doing something. Uh, anyway, um, after we went to him, we found out that he had gone to one AA meeting during his internship and he was so impressed with AA that he treated almost entirely alcoholics and um, so like I say he locked Paul up and I don't uh, I don't remember how long he was in the hospital before he had someone from AA coming and picking Paul up and taking him to an AA meeting I you know I didn't know why Paul spent his time locked up in the nut ward spent his time making lists of things for me to do to keep the world running while he was locked up in the nut ward. And every day I would go over and get my list. And uh, as Paul says, you know, you have to be pretty crazy to do that, but not nearly as crazy as me going over each day for my list like I did. Um, anyway, I remember one time on the list was to go over to the central office and pick up the big book. I don't know. I didn't know why, you know, this psychiatrist was sending him to AA. Anyway, one Saturday night I went over to see Paul, and uh, this AA fellow came in, and Paul introduced us, and Frank said, uh, we're going to an AA meeting. Would you like to go along? Well, didn't have anything else to do, so I said, okay. I, I had heard of AA and had heard of Al-Anon, but we never knew anyone on the program. And... Uh, so, and in fact, 10 years before we came to the program, I had sent back to New York for Al-Anon literature for Paul's patients. But I didn't read it. Why would, why would I read that stuff, you know? Anyway, so when Frank said uh, we're going to this meeting, and I, he asked me if he'd go along, and I said, well, okay. So I got in the car with this guy, and I thought he was a real goof, you know? He was telling us all kinds of personal things. 
And you don't talk to strangers like that. You know, he was talking about how he and his wife had broken up, and he was trying to get back together with her. And so he gave her guitar lessons for Christmas, and then she ran off with a guitar teacher. <laughs> and uh, Paul and I didn't say anything. He took us to Laguna Beach, and uh, we got down there, and we decided we weren't going with him anymore. <laughs> and uh, I remember walking into that room. It was a big meeting, a couple hundred people, and uh, so afraid I'd run into somebody I knew. My God, you know, and we didn't for a year, and I'm grateful for that because I don't know if we would have stayed. But anyway, and then when they started the meeting, they turned out all the lights and just had candles, and then I could be comfortable. And I don't remember anything that was said at that meeting, but there was a feeling in the room. And that's a strange thing, too, because I had turned off all my emotions, all my feelings years before. I felt nothing, really, when we came to the program. In fact, I often say that I had surrendered, but I think what it was, I ran out of ideas. Um, but anyway, I was very impressed with that meeting, and it, they laughed. And I hadn't laughed in a long time, and I really enjoyed what they said and so I wanted to go back but I, I don't think I went to too many meetings while Paul was in the hospital but the next day I think Frank had this Al-Anon gal call me and I didn't like her at all you know she'd call me up a dozen times a day and I didn't have time to talk to strangers about Al-Anon whatever that was but I did agree that I would go to a meeting with her and um the meeting was from noon till 2, and I had to be at her house at 10 o'clock, and I didn't get home till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I didn't have time to spend all that time on Al-Anon. And then she finally would, she'd call me up all the time, and she'd tell me I shouldn't work for Paul. And that was my security, you know. I didn't get paid, but, you know, uh, that was my security, and I wasn't about to quit working for Paul. It was a job. Um... Anyway, uh, so I thought, if that's Al-Anon, I want no part of it. And after three meetings, I quit Al-Anon. I had all the reasons. I worked. I didn't have time. I didn't like women's clubs. And besides, things were better. So, you know, why should I bother with Al-Anon? But I continued to go to the AA meetings with Paul. And we would go to Laguna Beach because we lived in Anaheim. And We'd go to Laguna Beach, which was about a half hour away, and if we didn't, um, you know, figure it out right, and we got there too early, we'd go and have a soda someplace because we didn't want to get in there too early. And then we would go in and sit by the door, and as soon as they said the Lord's Prayer, we were out the door. And on the way home, we'd complain because no one was friendly. <laughs> and we did this for a year. And... Um, uh, but we enjoyed the meetings. We enjoyed uh, the enthusiasm of the people. We enjoyed hearing these people that had gone clear to the bottom and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. That's how our, our communication started, too, because I remember I always felt that we'd never, you know, have any communication unless we talked. And for the first time in my life, I could drive in the car with Paul and not say anything and be comfortable. And uh, then on the way home, we'd talk about what the speaker said. And that's the way our communication started. Anyway, 
that's what we did for the year, and I wasn't going to Al-Anon, and uh, Paul was going to AA meetings, but he really wasn't talking to anybody. And um, ten months later, they had a Southern California convention in Anaheim, and we lived very close to the convention center. And I went over there on Saturday afternoon to the Al-Anon meeting, and I went alone, which was strange because I usually didn't do things on my own. And I went in and sat in the back of the room, and one of the gals who had ridden to those three AA Al-Anon meetings that I'd gone to came in and spoke to me and said, why don't you come and sit with us? And I was very grateful to Martha because I really didn't feel a part of. And I went and sat with them, and for the first time I think I heard something. And I decided to give Al-Anon another try. But I thought Laguna was too far, and so I would go to some meetings closer to home. And I went, I think, six times. And uh, I really didn't get much out of those meetings. Uh, even as sick as I was, I realized it wasn't Al-Anon because all they did was complain about their husbands. And uh, so I decided to go back to Laguna. And I was scared to death because that was also a big meeting. There would be 70, 80 people there. And they had tables set up, and I would try to go in and figure out what was the table that they, you know, wouldn't start at. But it seemed to me, no matter where I sat, that's where they started. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what, what am I going to say? I, I was like they were speaking a foreign language. I didn't know what they were talking about. In fact, in AA, we didn't know what they were talking about either because they'd talk about 502s, which is a drunk driving charge. Paul never had a 502. They, when they'd talk about having 502s, we'd turn to one another and say, what's that? Then they'd talk about being 86, and we didn't know what that meant either, although we found out after a few years on, on AA and Al-Anon, we went to a San Diego roundup, and we took two dogs and a cat, and they ate a sixth out of the, out of the hotel. <laughs> we found out what it, being 86 was. And then I remember this alcoholic gal standing up one time and saying she always wanted to be a hooker. And I turned to Paul and said, what's a hooker? I, you know, I, I didn't know. I learned a whole new language here. <laughs> anyway, we, we enjoyed the meeting, so we kept on going. And I, after I went to the Al-Anon meetings for a while, I decided that I really didn't know anything about Al-Anon. I didn't know what they were talking about. And so I said, my name is Maxine, and I passed. And I did that for a year, too. And I'm glad I did that because in not having any pressure on me to have to say something brilliant when I really didn't know anything, then I could listen. And I was fortunate enough to go to an Al-Anon meeting that had at least a dozen women there who had been on Al-Anon a long time. And I learned a lot from them. I, um, I remember the first time I was able to release my older daughter and I, I guess this was after a couple years, and I went to the meeting and I was so excited and I thought, now I'm going to tell them I'm, I know what they're talking about. They didn't call on me. Um, but eventually I talked, and I, I think those women in that meeting thought I was never going to talk, and I didn't plan on it either, but and I certainly didn't plan on doing this. Uh, <laughs> if anyone had told me that I would get up in front of a group and tell all these crazy things that Paul and I did, I would have thought they were crazy. But, you know, that's the way it goes. I, I also, when I first came to Al-Anon, uh, they talked about resentments, 
And I thought, well, I don't have any of those, so I don't have to worry about that one. Uh, and they talked about uh, pouring out booze and hiding booze. No, I didn't do that. Then after a while, I remembered that Paul used to treat a doctor in his family, and every Christmas, this doctor would give Paul a case of scotch. And Paul would drink a couple bottles, and the rest I would hide. And I put them in my dresser drawers and in the cupboards and closets, and then periodically I'd go back and, and count them, and then I couldn't remember how many I'd put there in the first place. And I remember this one time I had an extra bottle, and I had no place at home to put it. So I took it down to the office, and uh, we had a sort of an L-shaped desk, and underneath was a, a you know, some storage, and we never used that, so I thought that's a good place for it. And I pushed this quart bottle of scotch in there, and it clinked up against another bottle. And I reached in and got an empty half pint of scotch. And I thought, those stupid cleaning people. It never occurred to me that Paul had put it there. But the dumbest part of all was I left my full quart. And another thing that we do, Paul would get up in the morning and he'd tell me he was going to quit drinking and he wasn't, we're going to change all our friends. And I just thought this was one of his kooky ideas, you know. How could we change all our friends? Anyway, I'd help him pour out the beer. And by that night, he would say to me, why don't you go to the store and get me three cans of beer? And we'd argue a little bit, and I'd always end up going, and I, you know, I felt a little silly taking three cans out of a six-pack, but I'd do it. And I'd come home, and I'd think, well, I'll have one, too. And he didn't want me to have one. And I couldn't understand when I was good enough to go get it. I guess I could have gotten four. That never occurred to me. <laughs> but knowing what I know now, if I had gotten four, he would have wanted four. And the other, another game we used to play, we had built our house, and um, we had a bar, but it had folding doors on it so we could close it, and if somebody came in that didn't drink, then we'd keep that closed. And periodically when Paul would decide he was going to quit drinking, he would lock that bar and give me the key so we could fight over it every night. <laughs> and... You know, we'd argue a little bit, and I'd always open the, the bar, and then I would very carefully lock it up again and go off to bed. And um, then he'd spend the rest of the night trying to open this bar. <laughs> but he can tell you about that. That's his story. But we played all kinds of, of Al-Anon games like that. I, I uh, guess we were around a couple years when our communication really started and we were able to tell each other how we felt rather than what we thought. I used to think that communication was I would talk until Paul agreed with me. And that never happened. And I don't think it ever will. But now it's okay. I give him the right to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, when we were able to do that, and there's a big difference between saying, you know, you made me angry and I feel angry. I know I had so many emotions that I, I wouldn't admit to. I, I, you know, I never thought I should be angry, so I wasn't. And uh, 
Naturally, his things were still there, but I didn't know that. And I've learned on this program that when I admit uh, that I have a certain emotion like anger or resentment or jealousy or anything else, it seems to dissipate. As long as I was denying that I had this, it just got bigger and bigger. And I, it took me a long time on Al-Anon to learn this. I, I'm more comfortable than I've ever been in my life. I've always been a very shy person. And I, I don't have any trouble at all talking to people on the program now, but boy, I used to have trouble talking to people. Uh, well, one of the reasons may have been when we would go out with groups of doctors, Paul would give me a list of what I wasn't allowed to talk about before we left. <laughs> so. By the time I got there, I, I didn't have anything to say. I guess they thought I was a real jerk. But um, now, another thing that happened, too, was that after I'd gone to Al-Anon a while, everything I did, Paul would say, don't give me that Al-Anon crap. So then he decided that maybe he would come to Al-Anon and see what was really going on. And I, I'm grateful for that because I think it helped our communication because uh, he saw that it wasn't something that we would go and talk about the alcoholic, but we were trying to do something about ourselves. And uh, so now he's very pro-Al-Anon and thinks it's the greatest thing that ever happened. And I do too. I, God, when I first came and I heard these people say they were grateful and comfortable and happy to be members of Al-Anon, I wanted to vomit. I couldn't imagine why anybody would want to <laughs> have their husband be an alcoholic. Um, and yet, that's one of the greatest things that ever happened to us. I, I think it's too bad that not everybody who is eligible for Al-Anon doesn't come. But I think you have to go long enough. It's not like AA. You have to go long enough to know what you would be missing if you didn't go. And I, I have been on Al-Anon almost 19 years. And I'm still learning. And I, I think that it will always be like that because I am convinced that I don't recognize or I'm not aware of things until I'm ready to do something. Uh, and I think that's why I wasn't ready to recognize the alcoholism because I didn't know what to do. So it wasn't there. And uh, I think a good part of my life was spent in denial. Um, I've, like I say, I'm more comfortable than I've ever been, and I really put a high premium on my comfort. And I, I'll do almost anything as long as I'm not hurting somebody else to be comfortable. And the strange thing that happens with that is that when I'm comfortable, everyone around me seems to be comfortable. Uh, it's helped me in areas that have nothing to do with alcoholism. It's helped me with my kids. Um, I had a lot of trouble with my older daughter. We have two adopted daughters, and God, I think from the time Anne was two years old, I had problems with her. And um, when she was 18, she left home, and she was going to school. She was going to junior college. She was working part-time, and she had a little money. Well, three months after she left, that was all gone, and the girl she was living with wanted her out, I guess she couldn't stand her either. And um, so Anne had no place to go. So Paul and I and our other daughter had a little conference, and we decided we didn't want Ellen or I mean Anne at home either because she caused so much trouble. So I found her a place down in L.A., and 
we pay the room and board, and they made her get a job. If we'd tell her to get a job, she'd just go out and ride around and uh, wouldn't do anything. So anyway, she was doing that, and we had taken a trip after a couple months, and uh, when we came back, we called Ann, and the nun said uh, she moved out yesterday. And Paul said, do you think that we should try to find her? And I said, no, I think she'll contact us, which she did. She and her boyfriend were driving a rented car, and she had run up a motel bill of $140, and she wanted us to give her the money. And Paul told her he could only share his experience, strength, and hope with her. And <laughs> he had never had that problem, and she'd have to figure it out herself. So we didn't hear from her the next day, and then Monday she called the office, and like I say, she and I never got along. And she said to me, Daddy doesn't understand. They're going to put me in jail. And I said, well, okay, we'll see you around. And she said, what in the hell's going on here? Because always before I would be on the ceiling, you know, what would the neighbors think? But I don't think we would have done Anne any favor at all to have paid that bill. In fact, she's done some pretty crazy things. And uh, she went with this fellow and got pregnant, and, and then I guess she was four or five months pregnant, and they got married. But she kept telling me, we're not going to keep the baby, can't afford it. And I had enough Elanon that I didn't get into that one. Uh, and so when she had the baby, they didn't let us know. And um, then one busy afternoon in the office, she and her husband walked in the office with the baby. I was a little surprised because I believed her. Uh, but she was always doing things like that to try to see what my reaction was going to be. And most of the time, <laughs> she got the results she wanted until I found Al-Anon. In fact, uh, she told Ann after, I mean, Paul, after she got on the phone, she said, I like my old daddy better. <laughs> I didn't like this release. Um, another thing that happened with Ann was that uh, when she left home, we gave her a little Sony TV. She hawked it for $10. Then we gave her another one, that one disappeared. And then we got a new colored console, so we had the old colored one fixed up and we gave it to them. And in a short time that disappeared. And she never explained any of these. And then one time we went to the house and there was another TV there and she went into great lengths telling us about that had been a stolen TV from motel down San Diego, but they hadn't stolen it and on and on and on. And I sat there and she could have been the kid up the block. You know, it wasn't necessary for me to get in there and to try to straighten her out. I had finally learned on Al-Anon that I would have been in the booby hatch with this and Anne would have gone merrily along doing whatever it is she wanted to do. But it took Al-Anon to teach me this. I, I've learned that I've got to mind my own business, in fact, when things come up, I ask myself three questions. Is it important? Is it any of my business? And what can I do about it? And if the answer is no to the first two and nothing to the last one, I better back away. And I find that I'm a heck of a lot more comfortable. Than, and I don't, even now, um, our kids are growing, I ask them no questions. They tell me what they want to tell me, and I make no comments. I give no advice. I think I'm comfortable with that, and I'm sure they are. In fact, our younger daughter said, you know, you're not like other mothers. <laughs> she said, other mothers are always saying you have to do this and you have to do that, and they're demanding their time, and I, I don't do that. And like I say, I'm comfortable with that. 
and I feel that any time that we spend together is time that they want to do it too. Um, I, I have the freedom to be me uh, now. I, I used to think that I had to be the person that Paul wanted me to be, and I, or at least what he was telling me, and I never did it right. Never did it right. And now I don't have to do that anymore. Um, another uh, thing that happened, um, oh, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago, I had to have some surgery, and uh, I went into this hospital, and the night before the surgery, this pastoral woman came in, and she said, uh, you're going to have surgery tomorrow, aren't you? And I said, yes. And she said, you're scared, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, of course you are. And I just thought to myself, well, lady, you don't have a program. <laughs> and then I, I, I think somebody mentioned about the, we've moved a lot. Uh, we stayed in one house 21 years, and uh, about six and a half years ago, we started moving, and we have moved five times in six and a half years. As I often say, I don't know what my higher power wants me to learn from this. They always say on the program, if you don't learn it the first time, you're going to have to repeat it. And the only thing I can figure out is that he wants me to learn how to pack. <laughs> but this is the last time I told Paul, I'm not moving anymore. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, when we moved, well, it was two times <laughs> from before the last one, uh, we lived in Claremont, California, and um, Paul said he had a bad back, so he couldn't help me with the, the moving and the big heavy boxes. And so... I noticed this uh, sort of a um, film in front of my one eye, and I didn't do anything about it. Well, six weeks went by, and I figured maybe I better check it out. So I called and made an appointment with the doctor, and then Paul came home that night, and I asked him to check it out with his ophthalmoscope, and uh, he couldn't see anything. And I don't know why I did this, but I put my hand over my good eye, and I could only see him from the eyebrows up. And when I told him, he got on the phone and, and made the appointment for the next day. And I went in to see this doctor. Uh, I guess I saw him about 5.30 at night. And by 9 o'clock that night, I was in the hospital with my eyes bandaged. I had a detached retina. And since I didn't know when it happened, um, the doctor told me that I probably would lose sight in that eye. And even if I had sight, I would have double vision. I remember laying in bed that night and thinking... Now, I could be mad at Paul that he didn't pick this up because I had mentioned it to him several times. But as you probably all know, doctors' families don't get very good medical care. Uh, and I could have been mad at myself to think I was so stupid that I didn't do something about this sooner. But I thought, you know, that wouldn't change anything. It, the reality was I had the detached retina and I had to go from there. So I turned it over. And the next day I had the surgery and I had no problems. It turned out I lost a little sight in that eye and I never did have double vision. And I don't think that I could have done that if I hadn't had the program. I really don't think. I always believed in God, but I didn't quite trust him. Uh, I felt that, uh, you know, I knew what was best. But it's such a relief to be able to just turn things over and know that they're going to turn out the right way. And I, I have often said that I am very grateful that my husband is an alcoholic. Uh, it's really the best thing that's ever happened to us. Uh, 
and I, I, I'm just grateful that we could find this way of life because I, there would have been no incentive for me to try to change or think differently. And it's just, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. Thank you very much.